Okay, well, like Trey said, I'll be teaching on a couple lies, continuing through uh, the book that you guys have been uh, hearing about a lot. Um, And I'm going to start here with a story. Uh, One day, I I was sitting with uh, one of my friends who's not a Christian, and we were having lunch, and we were talking about what we believed about God, uh, just back and forth. He made it clear that he rejects Jesus as, his, as our Savior and that he's fully God and fully man. And he believes that if we're good enough, uh, that we will be accepted by God into heaven one day. Um, and all that being said, he, he was very happy and quick to point out and promote the similarities between our beliefs, though. So I took him to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Probably not something you'd think you'd go to. And I read to him, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in fourth generation. And I looked at him and I asked, do you believe this? And he said, yes. So I asked, how is it then that God will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty? Those things make everybody guilty. And he says he'll forgive those things. And in the very next line, he says, by no means he'll clear the guilty. So I asked, how is that possible? And he stared at me, and and after a while, he had no answer. So today, we will answer this question as we look through these lies. These lies, like Trey said, that the cross is not about wrath, and that God helps those who help themselves. So let's think about the first point, which is the cross is not about wrath. That's our lie. So what is this lie trying to say? What is the statement that it's making? Well, this lie is pushing back against the idea that God will punish his son and pour out his wrath on him on the cross. Some people have have coined this idea cosmic child abuse or child sacrifice. People who believe this lie argue that to believe that Jesus took on the wrath of the Father for our sins, um, that to believe that would to, to believe in a false God, a God not of the Bible. God is not wrathful. He does not hate people, they say. One proponent for this view has even said to believe in penal substitutionary atonement, which we'll, we'll go over that in a little bit, but it simply means that Jesus took on the wrath of God for us is to be a worshiper of a bloodthirsty God who violates his own laws against child sacrifice in order to commit cosmic abuse and murder against his own son. Is this the case? Is this the case? Do we believe in this self-contradicting, bloodthirsty God? Is that the God of the Bible? So that brings us to our first point, 
which is, so what's the cross all about? So the lie is the cross is, is not about wrath. So we know that it's got to be about wrath in some way. But what is the cross all about? Well, it might be helpful to stop here real quick and define uh, something that we'll be talking about a good bit. And I already mentioned it. This thing is penal substitutionary atonement. What does this big fancy word mean? Simply put, it means, and what I'll hopefully show you today, is that Jesus took on our punishment, there's the penal, on our behalf, there's the substitutionary, so that we can be counted righteous and restored back to God in a right relationship with him. That's the atonement part, okay? So penal substitutionary atonement. And I may refer to it a few times as PSA, just for short, so I don't have to say that over and over and over. <laughs> okay, so I, I bring this up, I bring this doctrine up because this is the very doctrine that the people who are, who are believing this lie are, re, are rejecting, this, doc, this doctrine is the center of the rejection in this lie. But it's important before we continue on to note that the cross is about and accomplished more than simply penal substitutionary atonement, but it is certainly no less than PSA. I will focus on this because, like I said, it's, this is the thing being rejected. So what does the Bible have to say on this topic? That's what we need to go to. The Bible will tell us what is true. So the Bible makes clear that God is wrathful towards sinners. God is wrathful towards sinners because of their sin. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all once, if you're in Christ today, you were once a child of wrath. And that is like the rest of mankind. Outside of Christ, everybody is a child of wrath. And what, what does it say? It says, by nature, we're children of wrath. To our very core, we are children of wrath. Friends, God is wrathful towards you in your sin if you are outside of Christ. That's a problem. And to add to that problem, that wrath is directed at us because it is our very nature, something we can't change. But God can. God began with the Old Testament, foreshadowing what Jesus would do. So does anybody here know one of the first times Christ's atoning sacrifice was, was uh, foreshadowed. Anyone want to give a stab at it? Jacob. Yeah, yeah, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were covered by animal skins. And this is the first foreshadowing of, of Christ's atonement because Adam and Eve have sinned an animal was killed, blood spilt on their behalf to cover them. This was to foreshadow what Jesus was going to do eventually. What's one of the clearest foreshadowings of Christ's sacrifice in Exodus? Who's got that one? Yes, the Passover. 
the Passover. God demands all of Israel to kill an innocent lamb and smear the blood over them on their, doorplo- on their doorposts on behalf of their household so that God's judgment would pass over them. It would not come on them. But all who rejected the blood of the innocent lamb, the weight of God's judgment would come to that household and his wrath would bear down on them and and their firstborn was killed. Okay, so that's pointing to what Christ would do for us and has done for us. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament is a shadow of, of atonement. Animals were offered on behalf of the people to make peace with God uh, for their sins. And Hebrews helps us to, to look back through the lens of the Old Testament and see that those sacrifices were never able to actually atone for sin, but rather pointed to the Lamb of God who would atone for sin and who could atone for sin. But Isaiah has one of the clearest passages for this amazing grace of God. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah 53, if you have your Bible with you. We're going to read Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. And I'll read that here. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought Uh, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Stop right there. Did you hear that? Did you hear what the God or what God just spoke of of the coming ser- uh, suffering servant? Someone tell me what are the things happening to the suffering servant? You can just list them off. Yes, he's pierced, crushed. What else? Say it again. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, he's pierced, he's crushed, he takes on punishment, he has wounds. These, these, this is the, the penal of the penal substitutionary atonement. He's taking on punishment. And all for what? For transgressions, for iniquity, that we have gone astray. We have turned our, our own way. There's the substitutionary. He's taking our place and, and taking our punishment for what we've done. He was perfect. And so what are the things that happened to us? Because he took the punishment in our place. What does this passage tell us is happening to us? What does it accomplish? Got it. Say it again. Yes, we're healed. There's another thing in there. Yes, peace. Yes, we receive peace with God. Our wounds are healed by his wounds. This is what's been accomplished for us. This is is why it's so important that Christ did take on our punishment for us because he restores our relationship. We find peace with God. Our wounds are healed 
because he took them on himself. Isaiah even goes on in verse 7, I mean, uh, verse 10. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It was God's will to crush Christ under the weight of his wrath. And why? Because his soul makes an offering to God for our guilt. And just keep reading verse 11. It says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. You simply can't read this passage and conclude that God would never pour out his wrath on his only son, that Christ was not a substitute that took on our punishment, the, the wrath of God for us. You can't conclude that from reading this passage. It was by his knowledge. It was the will of the Lord. And again, what did it accomplish? That many be counted, accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquity. Christ took on the punishment on our behalf. Friends, these are not my words. These are not Trey's words. These aren't Joy's words. These aren't some theologian's words. These are the words of God. And speaking of the words of God, Jesus says that he fulfills this in Luke 24, 45 through 47. He says, then he opened their minds, and Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And what did this accomplish? And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus himself proclaimed this. He said he was the suffering servant. He was to suffer and die on our behalf so that forgiveness of sins would be accomplished and proclaimed to all the nations. So, so far, we have simply looked at the Old Testament, barring the Luke passage we just read. So let's look and see if the New Testament agrees with what the Old Testament's telling us. We, we can look and see Paul after arguing that everyone is under condemnation from God because no one is good, which means we are all deserving of death and punishment. Paul says of Christ that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. What is propitiation? Well, here, propitiation means that Christ was an atoning sacrifice. He appeased the wrath of God. So Christ was offered to take the punishment of God's wrath on our behalf. He was our atoning sacrifice. John tells us the same thing in 1 John 4.10. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Our sins are deserving of punishment. 
which is God's wrath. And Jesus took that wrath on our behalf because God loved us and sent him to do so. Remember, it was the will of God. It was done by his, his foreknowledge. And 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from God's wrath. Think of every cheesy action movie there is. Someone shoots a bullet at someone else, and just in the nick of time, someone jumps in front of that and takes the bullet themselves. In a way, that's what's happening here. Jesus delivered us from God's wrath by taking on the wrath of God for us. But Jesus himself speaks of taking this wrath on for, for us in Luke uh, twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This cup is a, a common covenantal symbol of God's wrath. We could, we could look at multiple places throughout the Old Testament, but I'll look at Psalm 75, 8, which says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Whoa. Whoa, he is describing here that the wicked will drink the foaming wine of God's wrath from this cup that's in his hand. And they'll have to drink it down to the dregs. I had to look this word up because I don't know what dregs means. But it means down to the very bottom, the last drop, uh, sediment and all, whatever's left, you have to drink it all. Friends, outside of Christ, this is talking about you. To reject Jesus, to reject that Jesus drank this cup to the dregs on your behalf means that you will drain this cup. And let me warn you, you will never drain the cup down to the dregs. You will never reach the bottom. God's wrath is infinite. But this is what is so amazing about what we're defending today and the lie that we're tearing and what makes the lie that we're tearing down so insidious that Christ did come and live a perfect life we were unable to live and have not lived. He took on our punishment for our sins and took it to the cross where eternities of wrath were poured over him. And then he rose from the dead confirming his sacrifice was pleasing to God, that he had atoned for our sins and he ascended into heaven so that all who place their faith in this gospel, this gospel that I just spoke of, and turn from their sins would to rise to newness of life and be restored to God in a right relationship with him for eternity. This is why this is so important that Jesus did take on our punishment on our behalf and, and made a way for us to be restored to God, atoning for our sins. 
So place your faith in this Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, if you haven't already. Don't keep the cross at arm's length, thinking of it purely academically or or intellectually. This is deeply personal. You need to make sure that you can not only say Christ died on the cross, but Christ died on the cross for me. So, is it true that Christ, or that the cross is not about wrath? Profoundly no, that is not true. We need the cross because we have sin, and we need the cross because God is wrathful towards us in our sin. As Jared Wilson said in, in this book, if we refuse to affirm Christ's taking of our punishment, we will have to take it ourselves. Either way, the wrath of God will be delivered for sin. But that brings us to our next lie. Our next lie, which is God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. What is this lie trying to say? What is the statement that this lie is making? Well, this lie is pretty self-explanatory, but what it is saying is that we must work for our salvation, and then God will help us by giving us salvation eventually. A kind of prove yourself before God. Prove your worthiness of his saving grace. At its core, this is incredibly prideful. And a lot of of times, it can look humble and pious. When we say that our sins are too much, that God can never forgive us, that God can never love us, it looks humble, it looks pious. But when we say those things, in our pride, we say that Christ wasn't perfect enough, that his sacrifice wasn't pleasing enough. That his pleading before the Father on our behalf, continual pleading, isn't enough. No. We say we need to add Bible reading every morning for a week, and then I'll, I'll feel better about my standing with God. Or two straight weeks without looking at porn. Or one week of devoted service to my roommates. You fill in the blank. We can, we can manipulate and insert anything here. Friends, what I'm trying to do here is help you to see that even though most of us probably don't actually say out loud or, or think explicitly a lot that God only helps those who help themselves, we certainly live like that's true often. So as we talk about this lie, don't just think uh, about uh, Catholicism or Mormonism or anybody else that makes explicit that we need something uh, plus the gospel, right? That we need the gospel plus something else. No, today we're talking about you. Today we're talking about me. So focus and examine yourselves as we think about this lie. With that in mind, let's look at our point for this section, which is who does God help? So we know that the, this title is a lie, that God helps those who help themselves. 
So if we know that's a lie, then who does God help? Well, let's, let's look to Scripture again and, and let Scripture tell us who God helps. Scripture makes clear uh, who God helps, who he saves from the wrath to come. One of the clearest teachings of this and one of my favorite passages is, is Jesus in, in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Go ahead and flip there. And I'm going to have someone uh, read that actually. And make sure you do it loud so everybody can hear. Who wants to read it? Yeah. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Okay, okay, so who does God help? Someone tell me from this passage. Yeah, those who ask for it, what else? Yes, yep, that's great. Anything else? Yeah, those who, who know that they're sinners, those who have humbled themselves, right? And, and uh, y'all already got the other stuff. He, he helps the one who knows they can't help themselves, right? The one who recognizes that they are a sinner and turn to God for mercy. Not the one who thinks that they're good and that they're better than everyone else. Friends, be wary of thinking that as you grow in Christ, that you'll become more confident. You'll feel more confident. You may be more confident, but it's not in yourself. The more you mature in Christ, the more you will become dependent on Christ and see your own weakness and his strength. One time I sat down with a friend who, again, wasn't a Christian, and I I told him this story. And I stop just before Jesus tells uh, the people who goes home justified. And I asked him, who do you think Jesus says was justified before God? And he answered very confidently and said, the Pharisee, of course, this, the, the tax collector is a sinner. Well, it seems obvious to us that the tax collector is the one who is justified. We live 
like the way my friend thinks. If I, if I could just make sure I give to the church enough, if I, if I fast maybe a few times a month, I'm, or I'm not as bad as those people, then God will be more pleased with me, and I can add this to the gospel for the reasons why I should be in heaven. We so often are the tax, we are so often uh, like the Pharisee. We count what we got going for us. We're, we're better than, than others. We put our stock, our stock in those things. Say, thank you, God, that I'm not like those people who are openly in sin, who kill, steal, and sleep around. But we easily look over the fact that we, with our own lives, offend God and offend other people. We kill in our hearts when we are angry at someone. We steal in our hearts when we envy. We commit adultery in our heart when we lust. You could keep going down the line. We have the same evil heart as those people. So turn to God for mercy. Recognize that you have the same heart. You too are a sinner. You're in the same boat. Turn to him for mercy, just like the tax collector, and go home justified. Christ has offered up his perfect life on your behalf and taken your punishment on your behalf. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He is continually pleading to the Father on your behalf. So turn to him for mercy Go home justified. We have to understand that we cannot help ourselves. We cannot uh, get God to help us because of anything we have done. This is because when he looks down, he sees that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless a phrase that our culture hates. No one does good, not even one. It's Romans 3, 10 through 12. Does this sound like you can please God in any way outside of Christ? No, it's clear. No one does good. Left to yourself, you will not do good. You have turned aside. You will not seek after God. That is exactly why is necessary for God to be the primary actor in your salvation? God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who know they're helpless. God is the one who does all the helping through the person and work of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is only through the grace of God that we are able to be saved from the punishment for our sins. We can't good work our way into being saved. That much is clear. Ephesians makes it clear. We simply put our faith in the works of Christ. Christ was perfect in his whole life. His good works were good works and only good works. 
So friends, celebrate in that. Christ has accomplished perfection on your behalf. Christ was tempted in every way, but never sinned, not once. And Hebrews even uh, describes Jesus as suffering in his temptations. And all this for what? So that he would secure your salvation for all those who would believe. By his perfect life, and sacrifice on our behalf on the cross, he tells us that he can help those who are tempted and then and that turn to him in repentance and faith. It's by this we're saved. Christ has done all the work. Christ has finished the work. So enter into the rest that Christ has accomplished, that he has secured for you, all those who are weary and heavy laden, So God helps those who know they can't help themselves. But how does God help us now? Which gets us to our our next point. How does God help? How does God help? His help flows from the cross. It is enabled by the cross. So look at Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. This is a, a... common passage, a well-known passage. I'll read it here. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Wilson in this book that we're going through notably points out how each one of these things are not our own works, but are God's. What is the armor? It's the armor of God. The very uh, nature of putting on these things means that these things are other than us. They are not of us. We have to put these things on. Truth comes from God. We are given Christ righteousness. The gospel is given to us and accomplished for us. Faith is granted to us. Salvation is obtained for us. God's word is God's word, not our own. We must rely on God who can help us, not ourselves. This passage makes clear that God is the one working to help us. So do you get the message from this passage, the the armor of God? God supplies, and we humbly accept. As I mentioned earlier, Hebrews tells us that Christ suffered when he was tempted and that he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that because of Christ's work, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And what happens when that happens? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
This passage is set up and uh, set up by Christ's work, what Christ has accomplished. And because of what he's accomplished as our great high priest, we are able to enter into the throne room before God our Father in prayer, and we receive uh, mercy, and we find grace. These are not necessarily descriptors that describe us working. These are all God's prerogative. Christ made it possible for us to enter the throne room. God grants us mercy and helps us to find grace. This certainly goes against the idea that God helps those who help themselves. John Piper does a good job finding the balance here when he says, God works a miracle in us and we work it out. What he means by that is God enables us and prepares us for good works based on the work of salvation he has worked in us, not the other way around. It might be helpful here to go back to our Ephesians 2 passage, um, but this time I'll read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And from that grace, we are transformed by his workmanship. We are created again, a new creation. That is God's work. And what this transforming work does is enable us to do the good works that have been prepared for us. That's what John Piper was getting at. Our good works are a result of our salvation, not the means of it. Don't get them flipped. So, does God only help those who help themselves? Certainly not. He helps those who call upon his name, pleading for his grace and his mercy, because they see that they are sinners in need of our Savior, Jesus. Praise God for this. Because as Wilson said, in his infinite wisdom, this means anyone is qualified for salvation, provided that they will get low enough. So friends, humble yourselves and rest in the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that in your wisdom, in your power and in your might, you gave us Christ. That you poured your wrath on him and not us. God, that he lived a perfect life that we could never live and gave us his righteousness. God, help us to be moved by that. Help us to be in awe of that. God, work in us. Help us to be obedient to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.